Good afternoon, everyone. Great to be back with all of you after returning from Israel. I hope you're having a pleasant and beautiful summer. We are now beginning the fifth and final book of the Torah, known as Divarim, which in English is translated as Deuteronomy. Now, the word Deuteronomy means the repetition, the second repetition of the Torah. And in fact, this book has a nickname, you could say, as Mishnah Torah, the double Torah, the repetition of the Torah. Why? Because this book is fundamentally different than the first four books of the Torah. The first four books of the Torah are God instructing Moshe what to record, or starting from the beginning of Genesis, the story of the creation of the world, the story of our founding fathers, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, the Exodus from Egypt and the book of Exodus and then the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And then we went to Leviticus with the laws of all the sacrifices and the temple. And then the book of Bamidbar, the story of the Jews in the wilderness. But now Moshe Rabbeinu is 37 days before his passing. Uh, it's Rosh Chodesh Shvat. He's going to die on the 7th of Adar. And he's in the final stretch of his very a long and amazing life and career. After all, uh, he started as a little baby born during slavery times and was rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, raised as a prince, intervened to save the Jews, rescued them, was instructed by God at the burning bush to go take the Jews out of Egypt, took them out of Egypt, gave them the Torah at Mount Sinai, shepherd them through the desert for 40 years, crossed the sea with them, witnessed all sorts of amazing episodes, both good and bad. And now he's ready to die at the age of 120. God had said he's going to pass on, and Joshua was going to be the next leader of the Jewish people to cross over the Jordan and bring them into the land of Israel. And this book of Deuteronomy is known as the repetition of the Torah because it's Moshe Rabbeinu's final address to the Jewish nation. It is like a sermon given by the greatest rabbi teacher in all of Jewish history to his congregation, to his beloved flock before he passes on. Or you can say like a parent who is about to pass on from this world and leaves their final will and testament to their children, final words of guidance, of instruction, of love. And some criticism maybe of some of the things they've done wrong and the pitfalls they should be aware of uh, as they journey forth without his physical presence. And in this sense, the book of Deuteronomy reads as one of the most stirring, moving uh, books in the Torah because a lot of it is recounting what occurred and reviewing his experiences as a leader of this nation for the first 40 years of their foundation. You know, here we are, we've been a Jewish nation for 3,300 years, but the first 40 years is the foundation. It's the, the, the critical bedrock upon which this nation was formed, our Jewish people. So Moshe Rabbeinu is now giving them the charge going forward for the next 3,300 years till today and beyond uh, how to conduct themselves and like a loving teacher or like a loving parent, often pointing out the failures, the mistakes that they made along the way. So it's a very powerful book. Uh, it really captures the heart and soul of Judaism. Uh, there were great rabbis who said they would always review this book constantly because it's, you could hear Moshe Rabbeinu's love, but at the same time, firm guidance and direction not to stray from the path that God charted for the Jewish people by taking them out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, giving them the Torah, declaring that they're a nation of Kohanim, of priests, and a, a nation of royalty. And there's a lot of um, inspiration and motivation in this week's Torah portion that we always turn to, uh, to be able to continue the uh, mission that we accepted at Mount Sinai to be a godly nation. So the book of Devarim, the word in Hebrew means Devarim, which means words. Eilah Advarim, these are the words that Moses spoke to the entire nation at the 
other side of the Jordan. They're about to cross over. He's going to pass away. And these are his final words. And one of the beautiful things about final words, and we find this with Jacob on his deathbed as well, is that sometimes when you uh, give somebody advice, or even stronger than advice, you give them constructive criticism, they may reject your words. Why? Because ah, you have an agenda, you have a motive, you have self-interest, self-gain at ulterior motives, and we could discount or discredit the words of others. Not so when a person is on their deathbed, because in essence, what they're saying is your behavior for good or for bad is not going to affect me personally because I'm, I'm moving on to the next realm. I'm going to the next world. I'll be in heaven with God. You know, when I was your leader, your stubbornness, your, uh, your um, wayward ways, your rebellions, your quarrels, they all affected me. But now I'm not going to lead. It's Joshua's job now, right? He's, he's going to have to deal with all of this now. So obviously the advice I'm giving you is pure, unadulterated, good recommendations based on your best interest, not on my best interest. And therefore, I'm not the one, you know, sometimes people, uh, there's a concept of uh, reverse psychology, because if you tell someone to do something, sometimes they'll do the opposite just to spite you. But you can't spite someone who's not alive anymore. So therefore, take these words to heart. And, you know, there's many times where kids during their lifetime of their parents gave their parents aggravation. But then when they pass away, they suddenly, you know, the kids start changing their lives. And you say, I wish the parents were here to see how wonderful this child turned out. But sometimes when there's a parent alive, the child is somehow rebelling, rejecting. But then the words ultimately sink in and they realize that's why words never go in vain. Parents should always say what has to be said because they may not listen right now, but somewhere down the road, they'll, they'll remember what you said. So Moshe Rabbeinu gives his final sermon, his final address, and it stays with us till today. And it's, on a personal level, I'll tell you, it's an exciting book to begin. I always enjoy Devarim, uh, some very powerful sections. First of all, we're going to come up to the Shema first two paragraphs of the Shema is not going to be in this week's Torah portion, but in the next two Torah portions. Some of the most beautiful prayers that we have, the Ten Commandments will be reviewed in this book. And many other very moving, the, the, the end of this book, which will be read on Simchat Torah, is the Vezot HaBracha, the final blessing of Moses to the Jewish people. It's, it's, it's a, mag a magnificent book of the Torah. And in a way, it's more than any other book of the Torah, really encompasses and encapsulates everything that Judaism stands for, everything it believes in. You know, if you want to understand the heart and soul of Judaism, just read this book. And that's why I said there are many rabbis who used to read it all year round because of its potency and its power and its relevance to our daily lives. And there's some of the most beautiful, and I always qualify who am I to say which verse is beautiful. Every verse in the Torah is from God, so it's equally beautiful. But as far as it speaks to us, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. And hundreds of verses like this that Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching. Now, one of the things we know about Moshe Rabbeinu was that he had many roles. You know, if you want to describe Moses, he was a liberator. He took us out of Egypt. He was a miracle worker, right? He performed many miracles, 10 plagues, splitting of the sea, manna from heaven. Um, he was also obviously a ruler, you know, a leader. He had to guide the Jewish people, make decisions on behalf of the people. He had many different roles and responsibilities. But what is the name that we all refer to him when we refer to Moshe Rabbeinu? We say Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher. The ultimate name is Moses, our teacher. And why is that? The answer obviously is because the greatest form of leadership is through teaching, through education. There's a famous quote that says something along the lines that if you want to teach people how to build a ship, 
Don't tell them to go gather wood and start building the ship. Teach them to long and yearn for the great vast sea. And then they'll figure out already how to build a ship, right? The role of a teacher is to inspire a desire in the students to want to learn, to want to grow, to want to attach themselves to God. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu does. Now, throughout the other three books from his birth in the beginning of Exodus, you see him as the, you know, the, the leader, the miracle wor worker, the, the judge, the ruler. But in this book, he's one thing exclusively, a teacher. From the beginning to the end of this book, he's teaching his people. He's teaching the Jewish nation. So his ultimate role, his final act, so to speak, in his lifetime is this beautiful long sermon of Elah Advarim. These are the words that Moses spoke to the Jewish people. And as I said, they speak to us, uh, every one of us, till this very day. Um, and in Judaism, this tradition of being a teacher, like Moshe Rabbeinu, and that being a teacher is the highest form of leadership, because it, you know, there's leadership through power, which reduces and diminishes people. You overpower them, you coerce them, you force them with your power as a leader. But then there's the leadership through education, through teaching, which is just the opposite. It empowers, it ennobles, it enriches, it inspires, it uplifts the person. And that's what Moshe Bainer's ultimate goal is to be a teacher. And, you know, power dies with the person. You know, I just came back from Israel and one of the greatest kings was Herodian, Herod the Great. And he did a lot of great things. He built, rebuilt the temple when the Jews came back. He built the cave of Machpelah building he uh, built the, you know, if you've been to Israel, you know about Caesarea, Caesarea. He built that whole port. He built Masada. So we know he was a great builder and a genius. And one of the places we went to was his tomb. Uh, something Dini and I had never been to before. And I recommend that if you're planning a trip to Israel, Herodian Park. And basically it was the palace that he built. It's in the, uh, in the area of, um, in the, one of, it's right outside of Jerusalem and in the area of territory of Judea. And he built a palace there and he had a theater where he would entertain guests. And uh, it's a remarkable place to visit. You go to the top and then you walk down through a, a staircase within the mountain. It was a man-made mountain, by the way. Uh, I loved it. And one of the things is this archaeologist discovered, we know from records that he was buried there. He asked to be buried there. And that's his tomb. And they show you where he's buried and so on. But the point is that, you know, when a person dies, what, what, what remains of their power? Nothing. But when a teacher dies, their teachings continue to have life through their students and through their students' students and on and on and on and on. So being the teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu, and I've told you this a number of times, that there are 613 commandments in the Torah. The word Rabbeinu, uh, which is five letters, Reish, Beis, Yud, Nun, Vav, if you add up the numerical value of those five letters, together with the word Moshe, it equals 613. So, remarkably, the very word Moshe Rabbeinu, the two words, equal the 613 commandments. So that's what he... We live every day that you do a mitzvah, one of the 613 commandments, because Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah taught us how to do that. And the, one of the ideas about Torah is that there's like a contradiction about Torah. Why? Because there are conflicting statements about the Torah. On the one hand, it says, we believe and we know that Torah min the Torah is from the heavens, from God, the law comes from God. On the other hand, we say, 
The Torah is not in the heavens, meaning it was given to man to interpret. And the Talmud tells amazing stories about how there was once a debate in the study hall and a certain rabbi made a miracle to prove that he was right. And the rabbi said, we're not impressed by miracles. The Torah was not, is not in the heavens, it's on earth for us to interpret. And this is our logical conclusion and interpretation. So on the one hand, you say the Torah is from the heaven, then they say it's not in the heaven. Also, there's a verse that says that when God gave the Ten Commandments, there was a powerful voice with, with never ceasing, without any end. So on the one hand, we say that it was never ending, the voice of God. But another interpretation is that it will never be repeated again. So which one is it? Is it that it's ongoing or that it was, was never be repeated again? So we all know this idea that there's two Torahs. What does that mean, two Torahs? It's really one Torah, but there's two parts to the Torah. There is the written Torah, five books of Moses, and then there's the oral tradition, the rabbi's interpretations. The written Torah is set and fixed and permanent, and it will never be repeated again. And it can never change, and it's from heaven. But then there's the part of Torah that's not in the heaven. It's given to us human beings to continue to expound and unravel all the depth, all the mysteries, all the interpretations. And we know there are 70 faces to the Torah, 70 different facets and interpretations to everything in the Torah. And that's for us to continue. So Moshe Rabbeinu is the first teacher, but ultimately he empowers us to continue teaching and continue learning and continue exploring the Torah for all future subsequent generations. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. So how does Moshe Rabbeinu begin? So famously, he begins by mentioning different points along the way that the Jewish people journeyed from Egypt to the land of Israel. Now, why does he choose these uh, specific places? So Rashi, in a very famous and classic Rashi, says that the names of these places were references to different incidents that occurred along the journey. Uh, mishaps, uh, mistakes, uh, sins, um, quarrels, rebellions, like the golden calf, he refers to by saying, Dizahab, the place of abundant gold. And other places that he refers to, Ben Parana, Ben Tofel, Valavan. So Rashi says, we don't find these places listed. What is he talking about? He says, he's not talking about the geographical place. He's referring to the incidents that occurred there. What happened there? They argued about the mana that was Lavan, that was white in color. In other words, Moshe Benin was referencing, reviewing some of the you know, tragic events, the sin of the spies, the sin of the golden calf, the sin of the rebellions, the quarreling, the, the satisfaction over the mana. And our rabbis teaches a very powerful lesson. And that is that Moshe Benin doesn't specify. He doesn't articulate what the sin was because he doesn't want to embarrass the Jewish people. He doesn't want to hurt them. He doesn't want to offend them. But at the same time, he wants to give them rebuke. He wants to tell them, looking back, those were terrible mistakes you made because he doesn't want them to repeat them. So he sensitively mentions them in a gentle way, in a somewhat abstract way, without specifically uh, delineating or defining it. He just makes reference to it and figuring They'll, they'll get the message. They'll understand what he's referring to. And enough said, you know. Our rabbis have a long uh, discussion on this. Um, and, and there's a lot of Jewish law that even pertains to this. How do you rebuke somebody? How do you chastise somebody? How do you correct somebody? You know, we're all human beings. We're all fallible. We all make mistakes. And sometimes there's a need to point out to someone whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's a child, whoever it may be, the mistake they made so that they could apologize, they could learn from it, they could gain insight from it, but always do it 
and there's actually a biblical commandment that says we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to reprove somebody. I like the word reprove better than rebuke. Rebuke sounds very harsh and reprove sounds very much like the word improve. Uh, you're reproving them to try to get them to improve. But even when you do that, you don't have to overindulge in the words of uh, rebuke. You don't have to say lengthy uh, statements about it. You don't have to uh, go and um, elaborate about what they've done wrong. You could just gently mention it make reference to it, to just convey the message, but always to, as King Solomon famously says, you know, chastise with the left hand and draw close with the right hand. It's a balance of showing love at the same time that you're showing admonishment or reproof. So Moshe Rabbeinu does that in the opening of this week's Torah portion, he refers to their past journeys, specifically identifying the places that they um, rebelled or angered God along their journey. Now, everything in the Torah is in a very, very timely fashion. So this Torah portion is always read before the ninth day of Av. Now, in this particular year, as you know, Shabbat, is the ninth day of Av. It is Tisha B'Av. But because we don't fast on Shabbat, Tisha B'Av will be postponed to Sunday. But the words of Moshe in this week's Torah portion coincide and relate to the day of Tisha B'Av. And where do we find that? So in the opening of this week's Torah portion, um, but before I get to this point, I skipped over a verse that I want to touch upon because it's quite fascinating. You know, we live in a generation where Jews have always been scattered all over the world. Today we have, obviously, the printing press was invented and we have books, but now we have technology. And what's remarkable is that Torah is studied today more than ever in every corner of the world, because there's no such thing as a Jew who doesn't have access to Torah, because if you have a computer, wherever you are, any language, you can find the Torah. And today we even have Google Translate, right? You could just translate text from any language you want and read it in English or in any other language in the world that you're in. So this idea that a Torah could be read, studied, and taught in, any language, that the language is never a barrier between the Jew and his connection to God, is alluded to in a verse in this week's Torah portion. And our rabbi said it, and today it's truer than ever. That Moshe Rabbeinu, when he taught the Torah, the verse says in verse 5 of this week's Torah portion, that on the other side of the Jordan, Moshe Rabbeinu proceeded to uh, explain his, the Torah. Be'er et Torah hazot. He started to explain the Torah. Now, what does it mean to explain the Torah? So Rashi says, quoting the Talmud, that he, the Midrash, that says, Moshe Rabbeinu explained it in 70 different languages. The original 70 languages from the 70 descendants of Noah, Moshe interpreted in every language. Why? Because God, Moshe wanted to infuse the holiness of the Torah within every language. And that's why with the exception of very few prayers that have to be said in Hebrew, we can pray and study Torah in every language. And it's all because Moshe Rabbeinu, before he died, made sure to teach Torah in every language to show that the Torah uh, can be transmitted in any place, in any time, regardless of the language and the location. You know, one of the things I shared when I was in Israel was that I was walking in Jerusalem. I was actually sitting in Jerusalem. We had just come out of a tour of the ruins of the temple and the archaeological digs, and we went on a beautiful tour. 
It came out, we're sitting on some of the stones and talking. And there was this group of girls walking by. And this uh, young lady says, hi. She comes up to me, hi, Rabbi. I'm looking at her face to see if I know her from Palm Beach, from somewhere. And I don't seem to know her. And from her face, I can see she, she looks like she's Filipino. And I'm like, where have we met? And she says, well, you don't know me, but I know you because I watch you on Facebook. And uh, I'm from the Philippines and I've been studying Torah. Now I'm in Jerusalem going through a conversion, right? Here's a young girl with a Jewish soul who wants to convert because she obviously has a Jewish soul who's in the Philippines. But you could be anywhere in the world today. And it's all because Moshe Rabbeinu showed us before he died that the Torah is meant to be learned and taught in every single language. Going back to what I was heading towards before I interrupted myself is the connection between this week's Torah portion and the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, which is Tisha B'Av. And that is as follows. Moshe Rabbeinu says to the Jewish people that I said to God at that time, I can not carry you along, alone. Meaning it's too difficult. I said to God, this job is too hard for, for me to lead this nation. And listen to what Moshe Rabbeinu says. He says, Echa, how can Esalavadi, can I carry alone Tarchachem, your contentiousness, Umasaschem, and your burdens, Virivchem, and your quarrels? You are a very quarrelous, contentious, and burdensome nation. And I can't do it myself. And we all know what God says. God said, take wise leaders who will help you and judges and establish a system where you won't have to judge and deal with every quarrel, every dispute, every contention by yourself. But what's fascinating is that when Moshe Benu cries out to God, he says, Echa, whoa. Echa is an expression of, whoa, how can I do this anymore? Where do we know the word Echa? Saturday night, we're going to say the book of Lamentations. We're going to chant and read the book of Lamentations in the synagogue to mourn the day of Tishbab, which is written by the prophet Jeremiah. And what's the first word of the book of Lamentations? Echa Yashvabadad. How has it become that this city, this majestic city of Jerusalem, is now sitting in isolation like a widow? So you see the linkage between the Echa, whoa, how can I do this, of Moses crying out to God, and the lamentation of the prophet Jeremiah. And the connection is obvious, that Moshe Rabbeinu was crying and pleading with God and saying, I can't handle the fighting, the quarreling. You know, if you're a parent, uh, you surely had this experience at one point with your younger children when your kids start fighting, and you're like, stop it, I can't take it anymore. Stop this fighting, right? Like, how much could you have beer of this fighting, this quarreling? And that's what Moshe was saying to God. How can I deal with this quarreling, this contentiousness, this unhappiness, this complaining, which was, there was a lot of that. And we know that the temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred amongst Jews. So it comes back to this baseless hatred and this quarreling and this contentiousness, which led to the destruction of the temple. Then Moshe Rabbeinu references with the word Echa all the way back in this week's Torah portion. Now, what did God tell Moses to do? And by the way, I just want to remind everyone, if you have a question, if you have a comment, you know, this is a beautiful classroom. Everyone's in their own home or their own office, but we're all sitting together around the big table studying Torah, which is so beautiful. So just like if we were in a room, if you had a question or a comment, you would feel free to share it. I would love to hear your thoughts and questions. So what does God tell Moshe Rabbeinu to do? He says to establish a court system. And we all know this goes back to the book of uh, Exodus with Jethro. And there were lower courts and higher courts, heads of 10, heads of 100, heads of 1,000. And if a question was posed, it first went to the head of 1,000, then to the heads of 100, then to the heads of 50, then to the heads of, all the way up the rank sort of like the system that we have in America with this lower courts and higher courts all the way to the Supreme Court. But in the Torah, the real Supreme Court was God himself because in those instances that even Moshe couldn't answer the question, he uh, presented the question to God and God answered 
the question directly. So Moshe Rabbeinu was told to establish judges and court systems, and there will be others delegate your role and help and find others to help you in leading and the Jewish people and resolving all the disputes and the quarrels amongst the Jewish people. And once again, we know that in Judaism, one of the greatest, uh, even one of the seven Noahide laws for all of mankind is to establish courts of justice. Uh, the world stands on truth, on justice. Uh, we all know the commandment, Sedek, Sedek, Tirdo, justice, justice you shall pursue. And we all know there are a lot of Jewish lawyers because it's a very Jewish profession because Judaism is all about the law and, and justice. And right here in the parsha, we see Moshe Rabbeinu, one of the first things he reviews is when God told him to institute um, court systems. And there are a lot of laws about how to administer justice that are reviewed in this section. And just to point out a couple of key lessons about justice from a Torah perspective that Moshe Benu refers to. The first thing he says is, I instructed the judges in those days, listen amongst your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother and his litigant. So right here, the rabbis say, what does it mean, listen amongst your brethren? Of course you have to listen. What does it mean amongst your brethren? It's not just being poetic, listen to your fellow man. No, the judges are being told, listen amongst your brethren, meaning both litigants, both brethren have to be present. A judge is not allowed to listen to one party if the other one is not present lest the other one feel they didn't have the upper hand because they weren't there when the first one made that first impression. So the judge cannot begin. If one guy's running late, the judge can't say, well, you start when he gets there, tell me his side of the story. No, both have to be present. And we know that in our court system today, which is also very much uh, built based on the Judaic Talmudic uh, structure, you know, a litigant always has to be in the courtroom to hear you know, they'll bring him out of jail to, to have his court date because he's, he has to be present uh, when the, 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 the other litigant is stating their case. That's number one. Number two is it says, and you shall judge righteously between man and his fellow man. In other words, in the Torah, we find two words, justice which is tzedek, but the word tzedek also means righteousness, which means to say that there's a justice that is righteous and there's a justice that is not righteous. In other words, Judaism always believes in not just justice, but righteousness, which is basically justice and mercy, compassion, or you could say compassionate justice which means, yes, there needs to be a punishment. There needs to be an accountability. A person has to pay for their wrongdoing. There has to be consequences, but it has to be justice that is compassionate justice, which means a justice that takes into account the circumstances, the context, the individual, and everything else that goes along with it. It just can't be a cold, hard-hearted, justice. It has to be a righteous justice. And that's always emphasized when it comes to Jewish justice. And then, of course, the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu says to the Jewish people, he's telling them how to conduct justice. And what he instructed the original judges that he appointed, never show favoritism in justice. Treat the small matter or the small individual like the strong and powerful person. Never be intimidated by any person. Why? And here's a key point. Judgment is God's. In other words, there's nothing more godly than 
being a judge and bringing about justice. It, it, one of the terms for judges is actually Elohim, which means God's name, because God says whoever executes, administers righteous justice is a partner with God in creation. Why a partner with God? Because it's not enough for God to create the world. Man has to, has to sustain the world that God created. And how is the world that God created sustained? Through righteous justice, by man living in peace with one another and with justice and treating people properly and holding people accountable for wrongdoing. That is what allows the world to continue to function and to persevere. And therefore, God says, I rely on the judges. They are my, my, my emissaries to bring about the continuation of the world and the functioning of the world. And therefore, it says justice is, uh, belongs to God. So one of the first things Moshe Benu reviews is the idea of justice. Um, let me tell you a cute little story. Because we talked about judges being just. We talked about them being righteous, right? But sometimes a judge has to be not just uh, just and not just righteous, but sometimes a judge has to be clever uh, to bring about the best possible result. Because sometimes the litigants have to be refocused or um, have to have an attitude shift in order to avoid a conflict in the first place. And the judge plays a role in that as well. And this is a story that comes to mind. It's a, a story that there was once this father and son, a very elderly man who lived with his son. The son took good care of his father and the son would provide for his father. And the son would work in the field all day, you know, and he was olden days, he was a farmer or whatever, and he would provide all the needs of his father. One day, the father and the son come to the rabbi. And they say, we have a dispute that we need to resolve. What's the dispute? They said, we only have one winter coat. We only have one winter coat. We're going to get to Bonnie's question in a minute. Um, I only have one winter coat. And the father says, I'm elderly. My bones are frail. When the winter comes, I feel the cold so deeply. I should get the winter coat. The son said, listen, I feel bad for my father, but I'm the one who has to go out in the field and work all day and, 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 and provide for my father. I should have the winter coat. And the father and the son are arguing over who should have the winter coat, the one coat. So the rabbi listens, and I'm not sure what you would rule if you were the judge, but the rabbi listens to both parties, the father and the son. And uh, the rabbi says, I'll tell you what, come back to me tomorrow. Let's rehear this case tomorrow, but with one difference. Instead of each one advocating for themselves, to have the coat, each one should come tomorrow and present the argument why the other one should have the coat. It was an odd request, but that's what the rabbi says. The next day they came, the father gets up and says, there's only one coat, the son should get my coat because he's in the field all day. And the son said, no, 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 the father should get it because he's old. Rabbi listens to both sides and the rabbi says, you know, I have a solution. I happen to have a spear coat. I'll give you my spear coat and you could both have a coat. They were thrilled. Now they got in a spear coat. They could both keep warm. But then they said to the rabbi, rabbi, if you had a spear coat, why didn't you offer it yesterday? Why did you tell us to come back and each one should argue the other one's uh, position and then you gave it to us? Why not yesterday? And here's what the rabbi said. The rabbi said that our actions are, so to speak, contagious, right? We all mirror each other's emotions sometimes. So if I see you acting in a way that is selfish, it sort of arouses the selfishness in me. 
when I see you act in a way that's generous and kind, it arouses the generosity in me. And we all know that too, when you're around somebody who's being very kind and generous, it awakens within you more generosity and kindness. When you see people are being self-centered, it sort of brings that out at you sometimes. So the rabbi said, I had a spear coat, but as long as you were both saying, I'm the one who should get the coat. So my feelings were, well, I should keep my coat too. Why should I give away my coat? I deserve it. But the, when you argue the other one should have the coat, suddenly my emotions of, yeah, well, you should have my coat. So sometimes a judge, you know, they say there's four volumes of Jewish law, but there's a fifth one. And the fifth one is wisdom, cleverness, common sense. Sometimes a judge could even avoid a conflict by finding some kind of win-win scenario compromise that there doesn't have to be a conflict in the first place. But going back to Bonnie's question, Bonnie asked the question that, uh, remember last week's Torah portion, which was the last portion of the book of Numbers, related the laws of Arei Miklat. Arei Miklat was the cities of refuge. And it says that a person who committed a, a accidental homicide, does homicide mean that it's accidental? No, it could be an intentional or unintentional. So somebody who kills someone accidentally, the Torah says the avenger of the blood may want to take revenge. So the person should run away to a city of refuge and stay there till the high priest dies. We won't get into all the details. It was last week's Torah portion. But I guess Bonnie's question is, well, if they're judges, why don't they adjudicate? And the answer is that they do. You see, when somebody commits murder, the first thing they do is run away to the city of refuge to give them protection protection from the family members that may harm him. Then that person is brought to trial. If the person was found guilty of murder in biblical times, if there was enough evidence, the person was given capital punishment. Only if it was an accident, the person have to spend their life in, until the calling God will die in the city of refuge. And again, in today's day and age, tragically, there are many times where people commit murder and then they should be sentenced to punishment. But sometimes there's accidental murders. Someone accidentally kills somebody. And in that case, they had this rehabilitation called the city of refuge, but the judges were there to adjudicate these cases. Another fascinating, and, and here's something I should point out. A lot of the stories uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moshe Rabbeinu is reviewing what happened to the Jewish people, right? Under his leadership. And a lot of the times he reviews incidents where he either provides new information that we didn't know at the time it occurred, or sometimes not only is there new information, there could be different information. Now, it doesn't mean that one is right and one is wrong. It's giving you the contrast. So I'll give you the biggest classic example. In the next week's Torah portion, we're going to have the Ten Commandments. Moshe Rabbeinu is going to review all the Ten Commandments. Now, we all know what the Ten Commandments are. But within those commandments, sometimes he'll change something. So, for example, and this is just a very classical example, in next week's Torah portion, when it comes to the Fourth Commandment, the day of Shabbat, instead of saying, remember the day of Shabbat, he says, guard the day of Shabbat. And in the Lachadodi Friday night, we say Shamar Vizachar, guard and remember with one utterance. So the rabbis explain they're not a contradiction, they complement each other. On the one hand, we have to remember Shabbat, and then we have to guard Shabbat. What does that mean? There's the positive commandments of Shabbat and the negative commandments. So, positive commandments, you should make Kiddush on a cup of wine. And, uh, right? The negative commandment is don't kindle a fire, which today is electricity as well, right? You can't start a fire. You can have the electricity burning, but you can't ignite it. So one is the remembrance, the positive things you do on Shabbat, the prayers, the special ceremonies, and then there's the negative things you refrain from doing, like doing business or whatever that's going to interfere in the sanctity, the holiness, the peace, the serenity of Shabbat. So they go together. And the same thing happens in one of the episodes in this week's Torah portion. Moshe Rabbeinu reviews the incident of the sin of the spies. Now, we all know the story. Moshe Rabbeinu sends 12 spies to spy out the land of Israel. 
And they come back with a very devastating, negative, pessimistic, discouraging, disheartening report. And the Jews start to cry. And by the way, this is tied into Tisha B'Av as well. Because the rabbis say it was on Tisha B'Av that the spies came back and the Jews were weeping. And God said, you're weeping in vain. I will give you something to cry about on this day. This will be the day of mourning destruction in the temple. But when Moshe Rabbeinu reviews what happened back in the parsha of Shalach, number of weeks ago, the story of the spies, he relates some new information and some conflicting information that either didn't appear earlier or is contrary to what appeared earlier. So what are some of the things that he says that are a little bit uh, surprising to us? Because we read the original story, but now when he tells it over, he tells it over a little bit differently. So one of the things he says is, he says, you know, you came to me all of you together and you demanded that I send spies to the land of Israel to scout out the land before you actually go and enter into the land of Israel. And uh, that's new because we didn't know that in the original story. In the original story, we didn't know that the people came and clamored and demanded and insisted that spies be sent. So that's the first new piece of information. The second new piece of information is that he says that you demanded that we send spies. And the term here is, let me just find it inside, um, the Iraglu. Um, Vatomru, you said to me, Um, them spy out the land. Now, back in the story of Shalach, it says, the word is Latur, like a says definitively spy out the land. There it says tour the land, here it says spy out the land. But then when he, and this is the biggest shocker, then when it says, okay, God was very angry because you came back with a negative report and God says you're going to have to wander for 40 years in the desert and you're not going to come into the land of Israel. Only your children will enter into the land of Israel. Moshe Rabbeinu says something very shocking. He says, and it was because of you that I was not allowed to go into the land of Israel. God got angry at me because of you. And he said, you too will not go to the land of Israel. And here the question is, this is new information. Moses was punished because of the sin of the spies that he was not allowed to go into the land of Israel. Didn't we, didn't we know the story that he struck the rock and he was told then he won't be able to go into the land of Israel? So why all these differences in the story? And a lot of discussion on this. But what emerges from the commentaries is that Moshe never wanted to send spies. As far as Moshe is concerned, God said, we're going to conquer the land of Israel. We're going to conquer it. We don't need to send spies because we have confidence in Hashem and his promise, and we see that God has provided for us in the desert for all these years. Granted, that was only in year one, uh, but God had taken them out of Egypt with 10 plagues, but to see all the miracles, the revelation of Mount Sinai, there was no need to send spies, but he says, you approach me. And there's a key word here. It says, you all came to me together. And Rashi says, what does that mean? It wasn't like a respectful request. It wasn't like a delegation came to Moses. It was like a mob scene. It was a clamoring. Yeah, we don't know what's going to be. What's going to happen? We're scared. We want to send spies. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, that's where things started to get derailed. And basically, Moshe Rabbeinu capitulated to the demands of the Jews to send spies. And here's the key difference in the verb. There's two ways to go to the land. One is to spy the land, and one is to tour the land. What's the difference? What's the difference between a spy and a tourist? All of us have been tourists in countries, right? 
most probably, unless I don't know anything about something about anyone here, none of us have been spies for countries, right? It's an assumption, but let's assume, right? A spy is looking for the, the weak links in the country, figure out where they can infiltrate, where we could, you know, uh, penetrate. That's what a spy looks for, the weaknesses. A tourist, you don't say, let me take me to the, to the weak spots. You say, take me to the most beautiful attractions. I want to see the beauty of the country, right? The, the nicest parts and elements. God said, you want to send people to the land of Israel to scout out the land? They should go as tourists. In other words, they don't need spies. When a country is not secure, it needs to know what the weakness of the other enemy is so they can conquer it. That's why you need a spy. God says, you should rely on, my, on me and the miracles I've shown you that I will get you in there. But what the Jews needed, perhaps, is to see the beauty of the land of Israel. Not because they lack faith that God can bring them to the land of Israel, but to gain more enthusiasm, more love for the land, just like I came back from Israel, and know what they're fighting for know the beautiful country that awaits them. But they turned the touring into the land of Israel, which God gave permission for, into scouting the land of Israel, spying, meaning they lacked trust in God. And that's why they were punished. And even Moshe Rabbeinu was punished, that he could not enter into the land of Israel. Why was he punished? So Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest leader that ever lived. But what is the definition of the word leader? The very definition is that you're leading somebody else, right? Can you be a leader without followers? No. If you have a follower, then you become a leader. Now, there are people who lead millions of people, and there are people who lead a handful of people or hundreds of, and then you could lead one person. But you're, the minute someone is following you, and looking to you, you become a leader. Now, there's a very interesting, um, there's a very interesting interaction between the leader and the follower. You know, it says in Prakyavot, make for yourself. No, it says, like, yeah, Selcharav make for yourself a teacher and acquire for yourself a friend. That's what it says in Prakivat. Make for yourself a teacher and acquire for yourself a friend. Now, you would think it's the opposite. You acquire a teacher and you make a friend. Oh, I made friends, right? Go make some friends. Your mother told you when you went to go make, make some friends, right? You make friends. You acquire a teacher. Why? If you need a tutor, right? You got to go acquire a tutor. You got to pay money for a teacher, right? But Trikyavad says the opposite. It says, acquire for yourself a friend and make for yourself a teacher. What does it mean make for yourself? I make friends. I don't make teachers. Well, listen to the power of the words of the rabbi in Pirkei Avot. Make for yourself a teacher. We you know what that means? It's, just, it's not just the teacher that makes the student into a student by teaching him. It's the student that makes the teacher. Everyone who's ever taught anyone knows that when you have students who are listening, who are engaged, who are seeking knowledge, that makes the teacher. And if you have students that are not interested, then you lose your ability to teach. And that's true with all leaders. We always sometimes blame the leaders. Oh, the leader is not a good leader. The teacher is not a good teacher. But we really look at ourselves and say, what is our role in bringing out the best in our leaders? Are we good followers? Now, followers... Followership, followership doesn't mean that you just acquiesce and you become uh, submissive and blindly follow what the teacher or the leader says. Judaism is very much a religion of question and answer and debate and discussion. That's very positive, actually. 
And on the contrary, good questions brings out the best in the teacher because the teacher has to dig deeper to come up with better answers, right? But students that don't let the teacher just get away with whatever he wants to say, but challenge it is great. But there has to be the student that makes the teacher, that wants the teacher to teach. And that brings out, you know, you could have the same teacher with two different students or the same parent with two different children. And to one child, the parent is the most amazing parent and the other one not. You know why? Because the other kid doesn't want to listen to his parents. So the parent doesn't teach, it doesn't inspire, it doesn't, because there's no interest on the part of the student or the child. So what it says here is that it's not just dependent on the quality of the teacher or the quality of the leader, it's dependent on the quality of the student, of the nation that follows that leader. And therefore, when God sees that Moshe Rabbeinu lost the ability to lead, that he is no longer setting the course. They're demanding, we want spies, we want to send, and they're clamoring and protesting, and he's losing control and saying, okay, I'm going to let you do what you want to do. And get, God says, okay, you're not, you don't have the ability to lead anymore properly. We're going to have to transmit or transition your leadership to Joshua. And that's what actually happens. So when we read this uh, recounting of the story uh, from the words of Moses in this week's parsha, we see Moshe Bain is saying that my faith as a leader of the Jewish people was sealed and I was denied entry into the land of Israel when I allowed the spies to go and when I, and, and I, and I allowed the situation to get out of hand and didn't show strong enough leadership, which, as I said, led to the spies returning from their 40 day journey for which they were punished for 40 years wandering the desert. And when they returned, the entire nation wept on that day, which was the day of Tisha B'Av, the day which has become a day of permanent weeping for the Jewish people. I didn't get to touch upon the Haftorah, so I'm just going to take two minutes because it's something to talk about at great length. And that is, this Haftorah has a very special name to it. And that is Shabbat Chazon. It is the Shabbat of uh, vision. The Haftorah before Tisha B'Av, which again, this year it's actually Tisha B'Av, but it's the day before Tisha B'Av, begins with the words Chazon Yeshio, the vision of Yeshayahu, and it's full of rebuke to the Jewish people, chastising them, saying, if you don't change your ways, um, you're going to be you know, punished with the destruction of the temple. The prophet is trying Isaiah to get the Jews to return to God before it's too late, and all the corruption and the terrible things that were happening at the time, as described very vividly in the Haftorah. The following week is going to be the consolation, the comfort, Shabbat Nachamu. But I just want to conclude with a very famous uh, teaching of Rabbi Yitzhak of Bardichev. And he says like this, why is the opening word of the Haftorah Chazon, the vision of Isaiah? And he says that every Jew is shown a vision of the third and final temple on the Shabbat. Spiritually, we get to see the third temple. And he uses a simple analogy. He says he was once a kid whose parents made him a suit. The kid played outside and it was wild and he tore the suit got it dirty and muddied and torn. He comes back to his parents with a torn suit. Parents make him a new suit. And once and they say, be careful, don't, don't ruin your suit. Don't, don't, don't get it torn. And the kid goes out again and is wild and plays in the mud and ruins and dirties and soils his suit. So this time when he comes back, the parents make him a third suit. But what do they do? They say, we're not gonna give you the third suit. We're gonna take the third suit and hang it in the closet. And when you prove to us, when you demonstrate to us that you're mature enough and responsible enough and capable of taking care of your suit properly, then we're going to give you the third suit. So too says Revelius about Itcher that the first temple was destroyed because of our sin. And then God gave us the second temple, it was destroyed again because of our sins. And now God makes the third temple, but he doesn't give it to us yet. And he says, when you show me that you've changed your ways, I'll grant you the third temple. And this is the Shabbat, like the parent who shows the child a suit and says, when you're ready, you're going to get the suit. 
to entice, to motivate, to encourage the child to change their ways and get the suit, God shows us the third temple during the Shabbat to encourage us to change our ways and be deserving of the third and final temple. So again, great to see everyone after being away for a couple of weeks, wishing everyone a good day and hope to see everyone, God willing, on Shabbat. Uh, if anyone has any questions, feel free to type it in. Uh, last chance for a question or a comment, if you like. And I uh, look forward to seeing everyone on Shabbat. And of course, as I said, Saturday night, we transition right into the fast of Tisha B'Av, which is a 25-hour fast till Sunday night. But even though Tisha B'Av starts on Saturday night, uh, Shabbat is a happy day. And even though it's the night of Av, we eat, we drink, because we're not allowed to have any mourning or any sadness on the day of Shabbat. Have a great day, everyone. Hope to see everyone soon. Take care. All the best.